0: I'm John Rehm, and welcome to the I Hate the 2010s episode of the Nebraska Comployment Podcast. So, am going to talk in this episode about some of the biggest trends and stories in the uh, world of workers' compensation and employment law, or particularly sort of in their, to some extent, into their intersection. So... Um, I've got four stories, the afford, the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Affordable Care Act, and the constitutional challenges to state workers' compensation laws and the rise of gig economy that I think, um, weave together pretty well. Um, but before I talk about those, I want to talk about another story in, related to workers' compensation, uh, which is the opioid crisis. So as another podcaster, Matt Crispin of the infamous Chapo Trap House pointed out in their end of the decade retrospective, uh, the opioid crisis is to some extent a, a related to 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 work injuries. People who, you know, ne- either get hurt at work or are dealing with pain at work And they take opioids and they, you know, they need the opioids to continue working or they're prescribed opioids because of work injuries. And that is the other thing that Mr. Crispin brought up that I thought was a very valid point is that things like the opioid crisis and just work, workplace, the workplace in general is talked about very little in the news. And I agree with him that I think the reason that is, is you know, most people in the media are professional class people and the, the what they think is important, you really, their reality is much different than the reality, the lived reality of the vast majority of people. And I think what, what you end up having is uh, media that is, you know, in a way it's just almost just another form of entertainment, even though it's, you know, technically the news. So anyway... Enough chopo uh talk about uh opioids uh workers comp and I wrote about this for, for quite a bit start you know been writing about this for a while uh a couple things on how you know what you know what how workers' compensation has responded to opioids one is the uh the use of the use of formularies which i wrote about in 16 and 17 uh, essentially having lists of drugs that workers comp can can use or even having you know limits of of the number of scripts that you can take i've pointed out that you know formularies are essentially a tool of pharmacy benefit managers that are designed to they make their money off of getting discounts from discounts from you know, basically negotiating discounts from, from drugs, drug companies. So the pharmaceutical benefit man, managers, the PBMs, have stepped in and pro- to some extent profited from, you know, the concern over, over opioids. i uh, have also, you know, brought in so-called evidence-based practices. And then also, you know, there's been like a super formulary. There's been federal opioid limitations brought up that the federal government is going to limit, you know, the number of drugs that you can, the, the, the opioid prescriptions, you know, there's bipartisan support for that, including the failed presidential candidate, Kristen Gillibrand, Senator from New York. Um, so, and again, a lot of you know, people in medicine have pointed out that, you know, strict limitations are one size fit all policies that, that don't fit, for for everybody and as I've pointed out in my writings I think a lot of this concern over the opioid crisis or some of it at least is a pretty convenient excuse for employers to wash their hands of workers' compensation cases because you know if, if a drug you know if if we're not going to have prescription pain medication anymore, then it's 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 very convenient for employers to say, okay, no more medications, no more future medical care, you're done. We don't have to pay for it. And also not only you know washing their hair hands of future medical care, there's also a reluctance to pay for alternative Pain medication, you know, stem cell therapy, or or if people get addicted to opioids, you know, there's there you know there's severe opioid addiction. People, you know, the insurance industry is, you know, oftentimes they don't want to pay for that, or they or they don't want to pay for you know, opioid constant, you know, stomach digestive issues doing with opioids. So I mean, I think there's a lot of double talk from the industry about opioids, but again, opioids are. A um you know, it's certainly an issue that's gonna keep affecting workers' compensation going forward. And they're also uh indicative part of the reason that people, you know, maybe start doing prescription heroin and in or not non-prescription heroin, people start using street opioids or going onto the black market to buy opioids is because you know they they can't get medical care, either they don't have health insurance or they're cut off from workers' compensation, or they're they're cut off from alternative ways to to manage pain so they need health insurance which i guess is a good segue in to the to the affordable care act so we'll talk which i'll talk about later in the podcast so anyway that's opioids and i am next so that that that's opioids and that's the introduction of the show and so we're going to talk about the affordable care act the ada americans with disabilities act and the um, constitutional challenges, as well as the gig economy. Thanks. Workers' compensation is a, first and foremost, a form of insurance. I mean, it's disability insurance and health insurance, and it was the first really mandated employee benefit, I mean, outside of wages. So, the passage of the Affordable Care Act, or the PPAC, or otherwise known as the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, to paraphrase Joe Biden. I'll just quote Joe Biden. It's a podcast. What what what? Then Vice President Biden told President Obama it it was a big fucking deal, a BFD. But but I'm I'm quoting Biden there. But I'm not sure how much it actually changed. I hate to use cliches, but I don't know how much of a game changer it was for workers' compensation, but there were some, I think there were some very important effects on, of the ACA on workers' compensation. Uh, I mean, the first, there's some effects that, uh, on on practitioners that are, who practice workers' comp law, that are pretty practical. I think the rise of electronic medical records has made it more difficult for employees to prove workers' compensation cases, just because of the way those records are formatted, the older uh, what are called soap notes, subjective, objective assessment, prognosis, were or plan were better for doctors could give their opinions about cases. They were it was more cost effective to prove up causation, and I think those soap notes. Especially if they were written in a narrative form or more persuasive than you know, everybody, a lot of judges gripe about check the box reports or or reports that lawyers have to go get from doctors and add expenses. So, I'm not a huge fan of the new newfangled electronic medical records. From a practical point of view, I guess the High Tech Act helps a little bit to to reduce c- the cost of medical records. So. And then the high tech was part of the ACA as well. So, I mean, there's some real kind of inside baseball stuff that affects workers' compensation. Sort of the more structural or big picture things uh, is I think the ACA has increased medical costs and workers' compensation. And it's it's done so in a couple of ways. The first way is that the ACA has expanded health insurance coverage. I mean, primarily through the expansion of Medicaid and the states that have expanded it and implemented expansions. Like in Nebraska, we approved an implement an expansion of Medicaid in 2018, and uh, Governor Ricketts is is slow walking that is slow walking that, and we don't. So essentially, Nebraska has not expanded Medicaid you know, basically due to administrative fiat. But that's another issue. But anyway, um, but when more people have health insurance, if they're covered either under an exchange plan or if they're covered under Medicaid, those plans want to, you know, they don't, if somebody else is going to pay, they want to make sure that those costs, costs of, of injuries get shifted over. So they get shifted over on, to to workers compensation so i think the fact that there's uh other forms of insurance has forced uh more coverage it is those other people with other forms of insurance want another form of insurance to pick up if if they haven't done so already so i think that's impacted workers compensation secondly the aca has led to consolidation of of hospitals and, and medical facilities, so you know, there's there's just less competition between medical providers. Essentially, I think you have the ACA is accelerated a trend towards local monopoly in in healthcare. So, as an effect of that, healthcare costs have have gone up for procedures. So and you see that reflected in the increased costs of workers compensation so to some extent the ACA has raised the cost of of workers compensation not that I mean and I don't want to poo poo the and I don't want to completely discount the and say that the ACA has been entirely negative on workers' compensation. It's had some good effects. I mean, people, you know, can go and, you know, can go and have medical procedures done. You know, they're able to maybe settle a disputed case and, you know, to go on to an exchange and get insurance and not have to worry about a preexisting condition. So, I mean, there have been some positive effects. And in states where you've had the Medicaid expansion or you have people that, you know, they've been able to, go to the doctor you've had some people that have been able to you know create relationships with primary care doctors which i think is very important in prosecuting a workers compensation case because that way you're not stuck with wherever your employer provides to you and there is some independence particularly with the medicare expansion and also with the you know if you get your health insurance through the exchanges you're not you're not tied to your employer. But the problem with the ACA, and I think the reason why a lot of Democrats are put, not the reason why a lot of Democrats are pushing for Medicare for all, but uh, the thing with the ACA is it didn't really change employer-provided health care. It just gave more people uh, access to health care, health insurance without... An employer through the exchanges or through the uh, through the um Medicaid expansion but in the United States you know ten years after the Affordable Care Act was passed you know employers are still providing health care to your employer you know health insurance is still something that's provided by employers and that that the employer role in health care gives them tremendous power and workers compensation and that is not you know that really hasn't been abated since the passage of the ACA or the Affordable Care Act so and Medicare for all would would change things quite a bit and employers would employers would be out of health care and they would have a lot less control over over um, the health care decisions of their injured workers and overall i think that would be a huge it would be a huge gain for employees it would essentially turn workers compensation into more or less a fight just about disability you know it would it would largely take medical care out of workers compensation and i think that would be a huge boon to injured workers so what's the other effect, what's the other story about the ACA and workers' compensation? Now, this is going to serve as a transition to talk about the role of state appellate courts. But the ACA, I mean, it's currently getting challenged right now again, but the big challenge to the ACA was the uh, National Federation of Independent Businesses versus sibelius. And the case was decided in in 2012, and in that case, the the you know the constitutionality of the ACA was more or less upheld. Uh, states were not mandated to expand Medicaid. You know that that came out as the out of the Sebelius case or NFIB versus Sebelius. But there's an interesting there's interesting legal reasoning in that case that is important. Um, because so if you listen to this podcast, or if you know anything about workers' compensation, you know that it's it, there, it's a state-based law. And it's a state-based law because when workers' compensation laws were enacted, the federal government's re- ability to regulate commerce and regulate business was, was curtailed 100 years ago. So, So, anyway, so workers' compensation is... There's state-based laws. Likewise, workers' compensation is an, is a form of insurance, and insurance is also traditionally been regulated by by the states, and that's pretty much Supreme Court case law, with the exception of one case, Southeastern Underwriters, which was decided in 1947, which is partially uh, overturned by the McCarran-Ferguson Act in um, That basically gives states a leading role in the regulation of insurance. But the fundamental argument against federal regulation of insurance that predates McCarran and the Southeast Underwriters case is that insurance is not commerce. And you're just writing premiums and It sounds counter. this, This sounds a little crazy because if you deal in workers' compensation, I mean, you you have you deal with insurance companies that are out of state all the time. Who you may have somebody. I just had a mediation yesterday where the insurance company was based out of Kansas City, and you know it was Kansas Insurer, and the adjuster was in Kansas City, and they were working with an employee, and my client was from Nebraska with a Nebraska employer. But regardless court per the supreme most of this, most of uh, legal history at least insurance is not a form of com- you know insurance is not commerce for the sake of the interstate commerce clause and the, the supreme court held in the Sibelius case the case up upholding the ACA that the individual mandate was not commerce the fact that you're know, you're required to you know being required to buy something you know, forced commerce was not commerce you know you you know you would be penalized if you didn't buy you know buy insurance buy health insurance under the exchange if you were uncovered so you know that goes to what that shows is I think there's an outer limit to how much the federal government can impact workers compensation even if they have a tremendous impact on workers compensation through Anti-discrimination laws like the ADA or you know the ACA, you know, there's a limit to what the federal government can do when it comes to insurance. Which again, which is why why workers' compensation laws are 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 are, are state laws, and there's only so much that, that the federal government can do which is why the action in workers' compensation is in the states for the most part, which is why now I am going to talk about the constitutional challenges, state constitutional challenges to workers' compensation laws that were such a big part of workers' compensation during the 2010s. First things first, I'm going to talk about the changes to the Americans with Disabilities Act and how that changed the practice of workers' comp and employment law in the 2010s and will continue to impact those practice areas. Um, the ADA is actually an amendment to the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964. It was passed in 1991 that the ADA... or yeah the ADA was passed in ninety one and the ada uh prohibited disability discrimination you know discrimination based on on disability and it created you know there's there's disability you know just status claims there's retaliation claims and there's also failure to accommodate claims but the ada was passed in nineteen ninety one signed into law by george. H.W. Bush, who actually wasn't half bad on civil rights issues. But the federal appellate courts, essentially going forward from 1991, very narrowly defined the definition of disability. So as when I started practicing in 2005, it was almost impossible to have a good outcome in an ADA case because the definition of disability was so cramped. I mean, almost all of those cases were thrown out on summary judgment and nobody wanted to touch them. But in 2008, the ADA was amended In those amendment acts were signed into law by George W. Bush. It was my daddy's law. It was the ADA, and I'm going to change it back. Sorry, it's a bad, bad George W. Bush impersonation, but he's he's a clown. But anyway, so what the ADA Amendments Act of 2008 did was it pretty much restored the original intent of the ADA and created a very broad category of disability so so cases can't get thrown out on 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 disability and the real fight in ada cases now legally is whether you know essentially you can the can the person perform the essential functions of their job with or without a reasonable accommodation and so, you know, the litigation now focuses on what are the essential functions and, you know, the, the accommodation process. And that has, that has changed workers' comp law as well because the basically what happened is that if you have a a serious work injury, something where particularly if a surgery is necessary, you're going to have an impairment to a body part, and that's and if there's any type of work restrictions, there's that's likely going to be be a disability. So, the, you know, a serious a, ser- a serious work injury, particularly one where surgery, you have lost time or permanent disability, is almost always going to be covered under under the ADA, so, you know, there's, and that changed how, I think, how workers' compensation claims got handled. So, how? Well, there's a couple of things. Um, Used to be, before the ADA was amended in 2008, you know in, in the two you know the two in the 90s and in the 2000s and there was you know an injured worker got 12 weeks of leave you know assuming they're covered under FMLA they would get 12 weeks of leave and if they couldn't do that work if they weren't if they weren't ready to go back to work or if they couldn't be released with no restrictions or whatever uh after the ADA there was a pretty good chance that that person would be let go and then that um since you know the person wouldn't technically be disabled, a good chance that, that person that, that termination would be lawful. That's less so the case now because you know, because of the broader definition of disability, courts to some extent have written in kind of extra unpaid leave time into outside of the FmLA as an accommodation for disability uh, also there's some indi- you know there's some times where employees who aren't covered under FmLA even short timers and or people working at businesses smaller than fifty you know can get unpaid leave, even if they're not eligible for the FMLA. So there's the unpaid leave requirement has, has has come in under the ADA. And I think that what that has done has, you know, at least given employees a little bit more time to recover from work injury and not feel forced to have to come back or else that you know they're going to lose their job and another area where the, related to that are 100% healed policies are saying that you know you need to come back with no restrictions and again when the ADA was weak those 100% healed or no you know no no restriction policies meant that Employees who had work injuries, particularly ones that were serious enough to require surgery, would be you know would 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 want to be released back with no restrict go back to work with no restrictions, which would often limit what they would be paid out in permanent disability um, under the new amendments, the EOC issued some regulations saying those 100% healed policies were pretty suspect. Courts uh, have said that, you know, 100% healed policies, you know, again, are are suspect. The ADA requires that you treat people as individuals. So, and I think that's a pretty positive change. Uh, the other other two issues are, People being forced to work beyond their restrictions, you know, in and of itself, before the ADA changed. You know, maybe that's a form of work comp retaliation, maybe. But that's potentially a cause of action. Also, now, also there's treating people with non-work-related restrictions and work-related restrictions differently, like, We'll give light duty to people who have a work injury, but if you don't have a work injury, if it's if it's not if it's not a work injury, you're at you know you we're not going to give you light duty, or, or or alter your job at all. Again, those policies are suspect under the new ADA. Um, there was a case that came out right at the end of the year. And again, these cases aren't, you know, courts go back and forth on these, but there was a case that came out at the end of 2019, Morrissey versus Laurel Healthcare, out of the uh, Sixth Circuit that that held that, you know, forcing people to work beyond their restrictions and treating occupational and non-occupational um injuries differently for the sake of accommodations violates the violates the ADA so and so going forward at least into the 2020s so long as the the courts don't federal courts don't roll back the definition of disability I Think there's going to be a lot of you know close calls still as to whether 100% healed policies per se violate the ADA or or whether forcing somebody to work beyond their work restrictions violates the ADA. These these issues are probably you're probably going to see these taken up by the Supreme Court in the 2020s or or potentially so, but again, the, the ADA. Is I think been probably the most positive development for injured workers in the 2010s, and I think that even with a increasingly pro-business federal judiciary, that in the 2020s at least the ADA will probably be a better law than it was for workers before the Amendments Act of 2008. And so next, I'm going to talk about another federal law with A's in it, the Affordable Care Act. Actually, the PPACA. I don't even. I can't even remember what the PP stands. <laughs> can't remember what the PP stands for. Oh boy. Uh, but we'll talk about the Affordable Care Act in the next segment. Thank you. So the Affordable Care Act survived. You know, in partially intact. It's constitutional challenge Uh, there are also constitutional challenges at least at a state level made on behalf of injured workers uh, against unfair state workers compensation laws and these were a trend of the 2010s and one of the driving factors behind this trend besides the bad workers compensation laws were some lawyers Within the WILG organization, particularly Bob Burke, down in Oklahoma or in Oklahoma, I don't know where you're listening at. Maybe Oklahoma's up for you, but anyway, um, you know Bob Burke in Oklahoma uh, challenged Oklahoma's laws. You know, work Oklahoma's anti-worker reforms. Uh, you know, Oklahoma had what's called the, the Oklahoma option, which is kind of ironic. Considering Oklahoma used to run the option in football, but and I guess they still kind of do, but you know the Oklahoma option, where essentially employers could opt out of workers' comp and get into like an alternative system, uh, and that was actually ruled to violate, believe, um, equal protection. There were constitutional challenges to fee limits. In workers' compensation under the due process clause. Uh, there were challenges to the use of the AMA Guides to Impairment, sixth edition, under both the um, due process clause in Kansas. And there is another challenge made to the Sixth Circuit under a kind of a Lochner era argument called delegation where the you know, the worker the legislative branch can't delegate its lawmaking authority so there's constitutional a lot of constitutional challenges to some successful constitutional challenges to bad workers compensation laws made in the 2010s and you know I think this was the successful challenges were a good trend for for workers. But, what's the flip side of constitutional challenges? Well, one, why are you making constitutional... Cha- why are you challenging laws in the judiciary in the first place? Well you're you're in the courts because you lost in the legislature. And again, this is maybe another hangover from the 2000s, but you know, workers' compensation laws were reformed or changed to the detriment of workers in many states during the 2000s. So the 2000, you know, the the 2010 constitutional challenges were you know, worker, work, workers, and workers' advocates making the best of a bad situation, and losing in the, uh, losing in the legislative, uh, legislative arena. So, and I don't think it got any easier to win in the legislative arena in the 2010s. Is you know, basically Barack Obama pretty much neglected state Democratic parties. Not that Democrats are anywhere near perfect on workplace issues. Talk about that more later, but. You know, conservatives did very well in state elections in the 2010s. So part of the reason you have constitutional challenges in state supreme courts is because you're losing in the legislature. Also, not all these constitutional challenges worked. Um, So they don't, you know, you're not always winning. For example, what happened in Pennsylvania, they, they had that, there was the Protz case in Pennsylvania which ruled that Pennsylvania, couldn't, you know, couldn't, couldn't use a certain edition of the AMA guides, and then to impairment, and then the legislature fixed it or changed it, so that the win in the courts, losing the legislature, and then they go back and challenge in the courts in Pennsylvania for the I guess Prots too, and they 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 lose there. So you can only go so far. In the can only go so far, in the courts. Uh, Finally, you know, business can make challenges to workers' compensation laws as well, or the adjudicatory laws as well. Uh, There was an interesting case out of Supreme Court case Lucha versus SEC that called into question the use of the, uh, called into question the constitutionality of cases that are decided by judges who are hired as executive branch employees rather than as appointed. So business may have some ways to challenge the constitutionality of workers' cop decisions made in, particularly in, in, in administrative systems or where the workers' compensation courts cases are decided in the executive branch. Also, um, on the flip side of losing the legislature and, or losing the legislature, try to win in the courts, uh, in California, and we'll talk about this is a good transition into the gig economy uh, portion of the pod, but in California, California passes AB5, which covers gig economy workers under workers' compensation laws, wage and hour laws, other employment laws. And so what, you know, what's Uber do? They make, or the lawyers for the gig economy, they make constitutional challenges to uh, AB5. You know, one of those is equal protection, protection. why are some workers exempted? Why are some workers allowed to be contractors? Why are some workers not allowed to be contractors? And also, um, what I think is a scarier challenge, uh, contracts clause challenge from Uber, from, you know, the, the, from the gig economy companies, essentially saying that AB5 impairs the contractual relationship, which is you know, unconstitutional, Uh, so, so then that's a, that's an argument that's very, very pro-business and even courts in the Lochner era, uh, didn't, didn't really pay a ton of stock into the contracts clause, but it's a argument that's always made by business advocates and they've, they've started having some luck with that. And the, if it succeeds, in the challenge to AB5, we might be seeing more of it. So anyway, I'm going to talk about the gig economy next and then wrap things up. So, all right, next, the gig economy. Finally, the gig economy. Now, this podcast is recorded on the Anchor app on my phone. I'm actually talking into my phone right now on this smartphone technology expanded in the 2010s um, the, the the companies like uber and lyft developed uh, app apps that would allow people to get get drivers and these these weren't taxis now there's actually taxi services with apps now but uber you know if you if you were in a you know, started out in San Francisco and the bigger cities and then it you know moved out into places like Nebraska. I mean Uber if you downloaded the Lyft and the Lyft would connect you with the driver. Now the driver was not is not and was is not an employee. They're a contractor. So allegedly. you know, that that's the that that's it. And so Uber drivers, Lyft drivers, um, as well as food delivery services like GitHub and Grubhub and um, DoorDash are you know are are under the gig economy model or under the gig economy model where you know you type something you know you download an app type something in and somebody either you know drives to your house or picks you up at the bar or brings you food I mean and that you know that's the gig economy and the gig economy is more and there's also TaskRabbit, I mean. Th- for, for you know, people who could come and do chores. Uh, so, but but this is all based on having people who are are contractors, and they're not paid withholdings. They're not pay. They don't pay taxes. They don't pay unemployment. The employers don't provide workers' compensation. So there's a huge fight about whether these workers are actually employees or contractors. I mean, I I think the VAT. I mean, I don't see any way that they're that they're that they're contractors, particularly Uber and Lyft. I mean, these are they do the same thing as taxi drivers, who are employees. Or if you look at you know Grubhub and the food or DoorDash, I mean, they're delivery people uh, that are that are otherwise employees for 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 companies. So, um, but yeah, and then also the, a lot of the delivery uh, apps or Uber, the gig economy has transferred over to you know people that are doing delivery for online shopping so with the rise of online shopping there's more delivery work and more transportation work and a lot of that is going towards the gig economy so it's a pretty big fight for is as to whether these whether these workers are employees or contractors and uber you know they've won in some states and but the big loss has been in, in California yeah, with the passage of Assembly Bill Five, that passed at the end of 2019 and went into effect earlier a few days on January 1st, and then subject to some subject to some court challenges. But the gig economy is is one of the big issues, or it's it's, it's going to play out in the 2020s. And I first got onto my radar when the. Democratic-aligned Brookings Institute started talking about it in 2015. Bob Rubin, the former Secretary Clinton's former Secretary of Treasury, one of the architects of deregulating financial markets in the 1990s, talked about we need to. I'm Bob Rubin, and I'm here to talk about changing how la, changing labor law. And I I about pooped my pants when I read that because I don't want that guy changing changing labor law, I mean, just look what he did to, look what he did to the financial markets, or financial regulations, so, um, so yeah, the gig economy is going to be a big issue going forward, and I think, I've gone back and forth on this, you know, I've always thought that, not always, but for a long time I've thought that eventually there's going to be a federal solution to the gig economy because, again, some states go one way, like California, towards regulating workers. Other states have been more friendly towards the gig economy. And I have thought, you know, maybe there would be federal legislation on the gig economy. I'm not sure that that would work unless... Uh, I le- I don't I I don't know that that's going to be a solution that would require bipartisan cooperation which I'm not sure w- would happen now. The Congress is so dysfunctional, mate. I don't even think they could agree on something like that now. Um also there was a, the the trucking California had regulated the trucking industry uh before the with regulations about, you know, break times for truckers, and cu- trucking industry couldn't even get that passed through Congress. They had to use the federal regulatory scheme. So, um, yeah, I don't know that legislation is 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 is, is going to be the, the cure for the gig economy. Also, um, traditionally, workers' compensation is is state based, and I think that for a lot of reasons, insurance likes state regulation of workers' comp. Essentially, it allows states to race to the bottom to some extent on workers' compensation laws. But it's more likely that we might see some court challenges to California and New Jersey also you know, tax people. So I think we're going to see more courtship to to New Jersey, had a huge tax against the gig economy companies. So I think we're going to see constitutional challenges to, to laws that, that classify gig economy workers as employees in more worker friendly, read democratic or blue States like California, New Jersey. I think that's how the gig economy, fight over the gig economy, will play out in the 2020s, barring some massive shift in in our politics, some massive political realignment to the left. I mean, maybe, I guess if, you know, I don't know, Bernie gets elected and he's succeeded by Andrew, you know, AOC, and I don't know, some other member of the squad after that. And sure, you know, maybe, you know, we will have a federal fix for workers' compensation, and yeah, we'll federal minimum standards, and, and if there's a groundswell of pro-workers sentiment, states will fix their workers' compensation laws. But, you know, right now, you know, if, if, if our political situation stays where it's at, I would see that the gig economy would be... The battle of the gig economy is going to be one that's going to be fought in our, uh, in our federal courts, particularly federal court challenges to uh, laws that classify gig economy workers as employees rather than, rather than, um, rather than contractors. I'm going to talk about that more in my next episode. So anyway, a few closing thoughts and I'm going to wrap things up. See you in a few in closing I think the the biggest stories of the two thousand tens are mostly dealing with the effects of decisions made or you know political decisions made in the in the two thousands and you know even earlier in the sake of workers' compensation reform so I think a lot of the issues that we saw in the two thousand tens a lot of the stories we had in two thousand tens are going to continue in to the twenty twenties so so what yeah, I think probably the next big gig economy story of the twenty twenties is going to be the federal fight over the gig economy in California. Probably New Jersey as well, uh, and then obviously the. I, besides the gig economy, I don't know if there was really any legislation, you know, from when the Affordable Care Act passed forward that's really going to have a that really had a tremendous impact on workers compensation and employment law. You know, I guess there's gonna be the in the um, LGBTQ civil rights case will come down in twenty twenty. Um I'm not sure how much of a game change ultra huge game changer that would be federally or federally it'll it'll change it'll change the Title Seven, but that'll come out. But that you know, that decision came out was argued in twenty nineteen, but 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 things like the Affordable Care Act or the Amer- Americans with Disabilities Act, Disabilities Act, Amendments Act of 2008, we just didn't have a lot of big stories like that in the two thousand ten. So I think if I'm doing a, a podcast 10 years from now, I think a lot of what I'll talk, the stories that will be talked about are going to be things that happen, in the early part of this decade or even in the middle part of the decade, because right now I think that workers' compensation and employment law are kind of in a kind of kind of a stasis right now. I mean, I think that the the LGBTQ decision will be a landmark decision when it comes out from the Supreme Court, but it doesn't. There's doesn't change the structure of employment. It, it I don't think. A lot of states have, states and municipalities ban discrimination based on on sexual orientation and gender identity as well. Uh, It doesn't change the overall framework of employment at will. But it's still going to be, you know, again, a fairly major decision. But I don't think it's going to impact the workplace to the same extent as the Americans with Disabilities Act. Or it's not going to have that broad impact on workers the same way as state workers compensation reforms so i don't know i think if i'm doing a podcast in 2030 i have no you know maybe the elections of 2020 and 24 the the midterms will will be important but i don't know what the big stories of the 2020s are going to be besides maybe the fight over the gig economy so we'll see uh keep listening Uh, we'll be talking about that going forward once every two weeks or so and once a week now on my blog. So anyway, have a happy new year and I will talk to everybody later. Thanks for listening.